what if we can get spiritually hangry? That's really where we're going over these next uh, several weeks. Hang on to that. You know, you know, you sometimes hear, I don't know if you do this or not, I, I kind of obsess over these some things sometimes, where you'll see reports come out about all the stupid things we spend money on research for, like we study the, the mating habit of some iguana in South America or something. Like we just spend all these you know, millions of dollars doing things. Well, let me give you another, another one that you probably could have solved without spending any millions of dollars. A 2016 study tested the reality of hanger. Is it a thing or not that when people get physically hungry, they have an effect on their emotions? We, we might call it the hangry study, if you will. So this is a true story. They, they took a group of college students and they divided them in half. They didn't tell them what was happening. And the, they scheduled a test in the afternoon. And so half the group ate like normal that day, that morning, that afternoon for lunch, whatever. The other half couldn't eat all day until the test. And so when the test came, they got them in a room, mixed them all up, had them work on this project on a computer with a timer. So they had an hour to finish it. It was a real tight timeline, a lot of pressure. They're kind of harping at them to get done, get done, get done. And right before they finished, the IT department had all the computers crash simultaneously and all their work was lost. And then they interviewed each of the students. And as you might guess, I mean, how much money was spent on this test? Can we just, anyway, as you might guess, the hungry group reported more hatred for the researchers than the non-hungry group did. That's an actual quote. They hated them. Was tax dollars spent on this? I just, I, I, I'm getting a little hangry just thinking about that. So it's scientifically proven if researchers put you through a stupid test while you're hungry, you're going to hate them. Like that's just proven science now. We can establish that if you didn't know for sure uh, before today. Another study they, they performed said that you're 56% more likely to be irritable if you're hungry. It's science. You're, you're, it's just proven true. I'm a little irritable thinking about how much money was spent on these, these studies along the way, but that's probably a whole separate personal issue. So biologists have researched this. <laughs> I want you to picture being the biologist who on your resume says, I study hanger. I think that's kind of funny, but a bi- 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 biologists study this and they said it's because of a particular amino acid, neuropeptide Y, as seen here on the screen. Neuropeptide Y in your body has two main functions. Function number one is it monitors your energy level. And when you start having a lower energy level because you don't have enough food, it triggers your brain to say, hey, go get something to eat. That's neuropeptide Y. Neuropeptide Y also regulates aggression. So it makes sense that when neuropeptide Y is firing because you're hungry, it might also be firing and making you more aggressive. That just makes biological sense. So when you're running short on physical nutrients... You get grumpy, you get aggressive, you get irritable, you get hangry. My question for this series is, what happens if you're running low on spiritual nutrients? Can you have the same results? Do you also get emotional or relational irritability if you're spiritually hungry? Just hang on to that. I'm going to build a case this morning and in this series. I want to introduce you to a guy named Absalom in the Bible. This is one guy's sketch of the guy. We don't know, of course, what he looks like, but here's one guy's sketch. We do know a few things about Absalom. We know he was King David's third son, so he was a prince. We know he had long hair, and we know he was easy on the eyes. The Bible describes all of those things. It's like he's like me in every way. I mean, we really are (laughs) almost twins, Absalom and I. And we also know that he was charming, And we know that he was conniving. 
Again, probably some similarities along the way. So in those days, kings, like King David, not only led the army, they not only led the city or the nation, kings also were arbitrators. So like where we have judges today, if you've got a a legal disagreement or a contract disagreement or a dispute and you can't settle it between the two of you, you you hire attorneys and you go before a judge and all that. Well, in those days, they would go before the king and the king would make a ruling. This person's right, this person's wrong, it's settled. And they were the final judge, final arbitrator of all matters that came before them. Now, as you might imagine, a king can't handle every dispute of the country, right? There had to be a screening process because the king can't hear from every disgruntled person. That's why we have HOA boards. I mean, we can't do that just as the king. So a good number of people would come to the capital city. They would come to be heard by the king. They would travel a long way and they would try to get through the screening process, only be turned away, having not had their case heard, having not had justice that they wanted. And now they're leaving the city to go back home disappointed. Because the king wasn't available for every case, every time, or the cases he didn't think were worthy. So now enter Absalom, the, the conniving, charming prince. Absalom, this young, attractive, charming guy, he would sit near the city gate, and as people came out of the city, having not been heard by King David, his father, Absalom would say, boy, I hate that dad didn't take time to spend time listening to you. I, if I had been king. I would have totally taken time. I mean, your case is so important. I would have spent time listening to you. I hate that you didn't get justice. If I had been king, you would have gotten justice. And he started over the next three, four years, like this campaign to garner support for himself. I'm picturing Absalom having billboards on the, on the streets. I'm picturing having daytime TV commercials. You deserve to be paid. I'll get you the money you deserve, Absalom might say. <laughs> and over time... Is that thing still there? Okay, get that off there. I don't, I don't want to get sued. They'll get the money they deserve from me. I don't, want, I don't want that. Over time, the Bible says it's about four years of time. Over time, Absalom gained quite a following. It describes him like hugging people when they came out of the city or kissing their hand or just doing all political kind of things. And 2 Samuel 15, 6 says, Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. He stole their hearts. And because Absalom was patient, it took several years to do it, and because he was cunning, he waited for the opportunity to lead a coup because he had their heart. So he gathered an army, he gathered support, and he marched secretly on his father. Well, right at the last minute, David's a warrior. Had he known it was coming, he'd have been different. But, but he marched on him at the, last second. at the last second. He found out Absalom's coming with an army. And David's only option was to flee, to leave Jerusalem, leave the throne, leave the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God, to take his family and to flee for his life. And that's what David does in 2 Samuel 15. Now, as he was leaving the city, the Bible says that David stopped multiple times along the way probably to grieve, probably to reminisce, maybe to reflect. So he stopped. The Bible describes times. He stopped at the edge of the city, right as he's leaving the city. And then he went down into the Kidron Valley and stopped there again in the Kidron Valley. Then he went up on the Mountain of Olives, Mount of Olives and stopped up on the Mount of Olives and, and took some time there. I mean, he actually takes a reverse route 
that Jesus takes in the triumphal entry, which is probably symbolic typology type stuff. David, David the king fleeing Jerusalem as he leaves the city. Jesus the king as he's coming into the city. There's probably some symbolism there. Uh, but that was the path that he took. And, and in fact, here's a modern picture from Google Maps of the city of Jerusalem. So on your left is the city of Jerusalem. You see that high wall that was, there was a temple mount there now, but, but it's kind of elevated up on the hill. And so David would have stopped up there at the edge of the city and then come down to the Kidron Valley, down to the right, down lower here behind that fence. And then he would have gone back up the Mount of Olives there on the right side and over into the desert, out into the wilderness. And some scholars think, many scholars think, that as he was on one or more of those stops, reflecting, considering, grieving the loss, it's when he wrote the 42nd and 43rd Psalm. There, there are two Psalms in our Bible, really kind of one Psalm. If you read them together, you can kind of get a picture of that. Let me just show you some of that. Psalm 42, one says, as the deer pants for streams of water. I don't know, by the way, this is in my imagination. I'm picturing back in the day when it wasn't quite so uh, developed, there was probably a stream running through the Kidron Valley and, and David may have seen a deer there as he was reflecting. I don't know, David's kind of poetic. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? Now, you don't often see a deer panting. If a deer comes in your backyard, you, you don't see like a dog will pant. You don't see a deer typically panting. But when a deer has exerted to the point of panting, he's often fleeing from an enemy. He's often been tr- chased by a, a predator, which would be an excellent picture for David, fleeing for his life down into the Kedron Valley, up onto the Mount of Olives, that that makes a lot of sense. Running from his life from Absalom. Because in those days, if a coup happened, you know, you're getting killed. You're not, you're not going to survive this. But David says, I'm not thirsting for water. Deer pant for water. Deer want this stream like in the Kidron Valley. My panting, though, is deeper. My panting is for God. My longing is more spiritual. And David recognizes that. Now, I've just got to stop a second because it'd be, it'd be remiss not to. Is it possible that our fatigue and exhaustion... You know, ask the average American, how do you feel? Tired, wore out, too busy, whatever. That's what they'll tell you. Is it possible that our fatigue and exhaustion is not physical, primarily, but like David, our longing is deeper than that. Our longing is more spiritual. Our panting, unbeknownst to us, is really for something more of God. David continues in verse 5. He says, why my soul? Are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? He's talking to the spiritual side of himself, his soul, and he says, you're downcast. Now, downcast is a shepherding term, which makes complete sense for David, who used to be a shepherd prior to being king. And a downcast lamb, if you're not a veterinarian or, or a, a farmer, you might not know this, a downcast lamb has actually been flipped upside down because lambs are stupid. Um, when you're compared to a lamb, don't think it's a term of endearment. They're idiots. So the Bible repeatedly calls us all sheep. Uh, and so a lamb, if he gets up on a hillside, He's a little top-heavy if he's not been sheared especially. If he gets up on a hillside or he gets bumped into or whatever, he can get flipped over on his back and he can't get up by himself. And then there's all kinds of medical things that happen. You can Google that later. I don't have time to get into that. But all kinds of medical things happen and within a couple hours, he's dead. Like that's a fatal, downcast is, is a fatal thing. So a wise shepherd does not come up and start screaming at the lamb for how much of an idiot he is. Why are you downcast? Why are you doing that? Like, that's not how he does it. You'll just scare an already scared animal, frightened animal. So a, a shepherd will go to a downcast animal and will gently flip it over 
Because you know, like if, if you don't get good circulation in your hands or feet, they fall asleep. Well, a lamb who's been flipped upside down, all the blood runs out of his, his feet. And so if you just flipped him over and walked away, he's going to just fall right back over again, flip back over, downcast again, uh, which might be funny to watch, but not so good on the, on the lamb. So a, a shepherd, a good shepherd will flip the lamb up and then kind of hold it a minute and let it settle itself and let his feet get settled and let, let his, the circulation start working. Let him get grounded. If the shepherd doesn't have time for that, sometimes you'll see a shepherd pick the lamb up and put him on his back and they'll walk along together while the blood recirculates and the lamb calms down and quits being so frightened because he's downcast. And all of that is done one at a time. The shepherd doesn't fix 20 downcast sheep all at once. It's a, it's a one at a time deal. And normally, all of this is normally because the sheep did something stupid. The sheep made a mistake. He went where he wasn't supposed to go. He did what he wasn't supposed to do. And now he's upside down. And now he's flailing for his life. And now he's completely helpless. And now the shepherd has to come and restore him. And what a great picture for our time. So many of us feel upside down and we're running as hard as we can and yet we can't seem to catch up. We're moving frantically and feeling helpless. Why are you so downcast? The wise shepherd asks us. I mean, think about David. David had a lot to be reflective of. If this indeed was when he wrote it, he's not only losing his career, he's not only losing his home, losing his power, losing his money, David's also being betrayed by his son. I mean, there's a lot of reflection going on. Maybe I should have done this differently. Maybe I should have raised him differently. Maybe when he did this, I should have responded this way instead of that way. I mean, there's so many things. Some of you know exactly. If you've got kids who are not doing things the way you wish they would, you've got moments where you say, man, I wish I could go back to that moment and have that talk again or invade. You know, I wish I could do something. And so David's feeling downcast. Verse 5 says, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? That Hebrew word translated here, disturbed, literally means growling. You know, like when you're in a meeting right before lunch and you're, it's quiet and your stomach gets a little aggressive and the guy beside you is acting like he doesn't hear, but after like the sixth time, he's like, dude, what is going on? You need a Snickers bar or something. He tries to help you out because something's not going right there. David is saying that his soul is growling. He's not talking about his stomach growling. He said, my soul is growling. David is introduced, literally introducing this series for me in Psalms chapter 42. How many of us have grumbling souls, but we just think it's a quick temper? How many of us have grumbling souls, but we call it anxiety? How many of us have grumbling souls, but we look to somebody else to fix it? Like if my boss was different, if my wife was better, if my husband was better, I mean, that should be a good country song. I wish you were a better man. We could write about that, but it's my soul that's doing it. It's my soul is grumbling. Why is my soul disturbed and growling within me? Is it possible that you need more spiritual nutrition? Is it possible that you need more of God? You're, you're just hangry, spiritually. In this series, we're going to address uh, different spiritual practices each week uh, that, we'll, that the Bible describes as ways to get spiritual nutrition to our souls. The Bible has a lot of examples of that, and we'll take several weeks to do that. Today, I want to, I'm, I'm going to get into the topic of worship, but today, really, if I'm honest with you, my main goal for today is just to prove this concept to you, that a lot of us are hangry and think it's something else. 
And if you're hangry and think it's something else, it doesn't fix it. And so I want to convince you, I want to implore you to invest into fixing what really ails you. Because a lot, I mean, I know a lot of you have, all of us have lots of things vying for our time, vying for our attention, vying for our energy. And I I know it's just one more thing that I'm going to put on your plate. And I just want to say to you, maybe this one thing, because it's deeper and more spiritual, will actually check off some of the other things that you were wanting to spend time on. And that's, that's what the goal is today. But I also want to talk about worship. The Bible talks about worship a lot. Uh, singing to God, thanking God, praising God. Now, I'm not giving as much time. That's why I put it on this week as opposed to the other weeks because you're already doing some of that. You're here. Uh, so you already have a little bit of belief in that. But I want to I challenge us to see it maybe a little differently than what some of us do. Uh, look at these words from Psalms 95. There's a lot of places I could have pointed to you, but Psalms 95 is great. Psalm 95 one says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before God with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. In American churches, and this is not judgmental, this is, this is me too. In American churches, worship has become the warm-up act before the pastor speaks. You know, you go to a concert for somebody you really like, and they've got some local schmuck who warms up for them. That's what we've done with worship. But if you know me, you know I'm the local schmuck, and we're worshiping somebody greater than me. So we've gotten it backwards. If, if, but that's what we do. The, like, and it was never designed to be that way. Worship of our great God was never designed to be the warm-up act for some dude. Like, that was never how it was designed to be, and we've gotten it all backwards. I mean, here in Psalms 95, look at the verse. We're told specifically to sing to God. We're told specifically to, to be joyful and loud and thankful, to do it with music. I mean, this is not a suggestion. This is not a, hey, if you think about it. This is a command in the words of God to do these things for God, to God. We were designed that way. Now, with this in mind, I'm making a kind of an executive change today. Uh, I just want to let you know full well what's happening. Normally on Sundays, uh, one of the things we do to be welcoming is we leave all of the, the house lights, if you will, the, the lights over the room, we leave all those on for the first five minutes or so. Uh, in staff meetings, when we're talking about how to organize the service, we don't ever put something we want everybody here for in the first five minutes because we know you're not going to be here in the first five minutes. Um, but we leave the lights on so that new people specifically can find their way to their seat and they can feel comfortable and not have to walk into a dark room and all of that. The problem is it's typically not the newer people who are coming in late. If you didn't wear your hard-toed shoes, I apologize uh, for that. If a newer person comes in late, it's almost always because they got caught in children's check-in by the rest of us who are also arriving late, and it makes them later in the process. Because we're all getting here last minute. So new folks aren't getting here late. They get here early because they don't know where they're going. They want to make sure they get their kids settled. They want to make sure they get whatever. And they come in and grab a seat. We're out talking to people. We're getting a cup of coffee, maybe a second cup of coffee. We're talking around. And then the service starts, we're like, oh, I probably should get in there, but i got to tell this guy about this thing, and so we're having this conversation. And we finally mosey right, because it's not really starting anyway. I mean, it's just, the service is not until, you know, it's later when it's really starting. And the unintended message of us leaving the lights up, assuming people are going to come in, and it's my fault, I take full responsibility. The unintended message is that we're not really starting until later in the service. This is just the music interlude to get everybody in their seat. Nothing's really happening until later. And that's never how the Bible describes it. 
So that's going to change today. So next week, if you come in late, you're going to have to make your way in the, a dark room to a dark seat. That's just how, that's how that's going to that's how that's going to be. Okay. Now, if you're a new person, our greeters, I'm going to ask them to do this. If you're a new person, our greeters will smile at you and they'll help you find your way in a dark room to a dark seat. They're going to do that. If you're a regular person, our greeters will also, because God is kind, they'll also help you find your way in a dark room, but they're going to roll their eyes at you as they're doing it. That's just going to happen because you know better. Now, true story, confession to you. I, I knew this was coming today. You didn't know I was going to fuss at you, but I knew I was going to fuss at all of us. And so today, honestly, first, before first service, I always worship with my family first service. I was out there and people were wanting to talk to me about other things. And so all of a sudden I hear the service about to start. And I'm thinking, I got to get some coffee. So I'm going over, just doing my own thing, get some coffee. People are talking, I'm talking. And all of a sudden I realize, oh shoot, I'm going to be late before I fuss at them about being late. Like I can't do that. And so I'm booking it across the lobby and grabbing the communion and getting sick. And I was in on time. I did it in on time, but it was very close. I was almost a total hypocrite uh, even this morning. The thing about how we do other things, let me just think how we do other things. My four daughters are so excited because they have Taylor Swift tickets that everybody's fighting over when she comes to Nashville in May. And I guarantee you, with the amount of money that was spent on those four tickets and the excitement level they have about Taylor Swift coming to Nashville, I guarantee you they will not be walking in to see Taylor five minutes late. Sorry, Taylor, I had to get some coffee. There's no way. There's not a chance in the world. They won't let parking be an excuse. I mean, they're going to have to park like in Alabama to get into the, the arena. <laughs> You've got parking within like 50 feet of this building to get in this room. There's, there's no way that's going to stand in their way. Go see a soccer match and see how far away you have to park. Like there's just no way that we would allow that because it's important to us to see Taylor or soccer or the Preds or the Titans. Oh, wait, that's too soon. I shouldn't make fun of the Titans. That's too soon. It's important for us. We wouldn't be there five minutes late. When I went on sabbatical, I went and watched the Colts get beat by the Titans. That hurts me to say that out loud. I was there like an hour early in my seat, way up in the stands to watch them. Now, this is not for us to feel bad. This is for us to change. We have allowed ourselves to see singing to God as the opening after the sermon, and it never was. We were just wrong. We were wrong on that. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Psalm 95 continues, For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. I would say the great king above everything else that we worship, every entertainer, every actor, every celebrity that we worship. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to God. The sea is God's. He made it and his hands formed the dry land. Now, these are not new commands from David or concepts for David. The people he was speaking them to and the original Jewish people, none of them were like, oh man, I had no idea God had involvement in making the earth. They knew all of this. It's been said we don't need to be taught as much as we need to be reminded. And there's something powerful about music that reminds us of what we already know to be true. Specifically here, the goodness and greatness of our God. I mean, just this morning, think about this morning and what we've been reminded of. We've been reminded that even when life is tumultuous, our soul can be well this morning. We were reminded of that. And if your soul is in a storm right now, which I'm sure a room this size, a lot of you are facing that, knowing that you, it can be well anyway, that's a big reminder. We were reminded just this morning that, that our God is holy, 
Holy, holy. He's, he's, the, 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 Jesus is above all that. Jesus reigns. And if Jesus reigns and we put him in his proper place, then all of my giant-sized problems in my life become much smaller because he's bigger. I mean, they're just as big. I'm just as small, but he's bigger. And so all of a sudden, my huge problems that I can't solve become right-sized in the feet of my, of my God who reigns. It's important for us to be reminded The Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. Verse 6 says, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. We're the flock, Scripture says. We're the flock, the flock who sometimes gets downcast, the flock who sometimes goes where they're not supposed to go and does what they're not supposed to do and has to have our shepherd come as our only hope to ride us up and put us on our feet. And carry us along the way when we can't walk on our own. It's powerful. We've got to be reminded of that. Psalm 95 ends with a message from the Lord. So David has this whole thing on the front end about singing to God. And then there's a message from God in those last verses. Which I think is why verse 7 ends with, Today, if only you would hear his voice. And then it goes on to give this message from God. Is it possible that we can hear the voice of God more clearly when we've taken some time not just to sing, not just to listen to musicians sing, but when we've taken some time to worship? Is it possible that we hear God's voice more clearly when we've done that? I think it is. And if it's true on Sundays, and I believe that it is true on Sundays, why wouldn't it also be true on a Tuesday? Do we not need to hear God's voice on a Tuesday? Do we not need to hear God's voice on some random Thursday? I mean, wouldn't it be true if that prepares us to hear the voice of God in a noisy world? Wouldn't that also be true every day of our life? I mean, I want to encourage you. This is not something I'm just being theoretical about. One of my takeaways from sabbatical was some of this. And I, I have, since I've been back, I start every day spend some time in worship. In fact, we've created a Spotify playlist this week. If you use Spotify, you can go on uh, of the songs we normally sing. Go to wellspringchristian.org slash playlist and you can, you can find every song that we sing. We, we, it's all, all the regulars are on there. Some of you say, I don't know where these songs come from. I, I just know I like them. Well, go find them. I've started this new habit of singing along with two worship songs to start the day. So when I come into the office, first thing I do, before I open my laptop, before I check email, before I jump into my to-do list, first thing I do is, is, is kind of still myself and go to this playlist and, and play two songs. And I'm not just listening to them. I'm singing along. And I'm not just kind of mumbling. Like, I'm, I'm belting out. So if you come into the office early, you're going to hear me singing badly along with all these songs. Because it prepares me for the day better than I think any other 10-minute chunk of time I could spend would prepare me. I think our souls are hungry for more of God. And I think maybe, maybe 10 minutes of doing that would be a big, a big change for lots of us. So maybe for you, it's as you're driving to work. You've got to commute. Don't just listen to things you normally listen to. Take some time to worship God on the way to, on the way to work. I mean, what if, what if worship was designed to be a bigger part of our lives than just a few minutes a couple of times a month? What if we've been trying to fix the wrong things? What if our problem, our symptoms, actually have deeper, more spiritual meaning than the things that we're pointing to trying to fix in our life? I think it does. I think we're spiritually hungry. 
All right, let me introduce you to a new family member in the Huddleston household. This is Milo. If you want to go put Milo up on the screen there. That's Milo. Yeah. Milo's about half hound and about half rotten. That's the mix uh, genetically of, of Milo. And Milo's all puppy. I mean, just all puppy. Milo likes to chew on anything that he's not supposed to. If he's not supposed to, he loves it. Give him a chew toy, eh, it's not so bad. Somebody's not supposed to, that's what he wants. Especially toilet paper. Milo's favorite is he'll run into our bathroom when we're not looking, grab a whole roll of toilet paper, and see how many tiny pieces he can turn one roll into. And he's very good at it. If you've not taken some time to pick up a couple hundred pieces of wet toilet paper out of a shag throw rug, you have not had a good time. You can come to my house... And we will have fun together because Milo loves some toilet paper. Milo also loves fetch. And uh, I've learned this about Milo. So I'll sit in our living room and I'll lean against the couch and face our kitchen. And we've got a a ball or two he plays with. We've got one of those Kong things that bounces weird. And and so I'll throw it and, uh, and he'll run and chase it and he just loves it. And he enjoys it. But I also enjoy it because we have hardwood floors in our kitchen. If you've never seen a puppy on hardwood floors, that's a, that's a fun time, right? So I'll throw the ball in there and Milo will run in and slide all over and I'll laugh and, and he'll laugh. And we have a good time together. It's all great. And then he'll bring it back. And, uh, sometimes I'll use the Kong thing and I'll put a, like a slider spin on it or a curveball spin on it. And so it'll, it'll land and bounce this way. And he does the, the, like the monster truck where he's pointing this way but going that way. And he's trying to... It's a lot of fun. And my wife, because she has a, a dark spot in her soul, put a throw rug right in the middle of his fetch path. And so he'll pounce on that and go sliding off. And that's a lot of fun too. And uh, it keeps me entertained as much as it does him, which is, which is good. But here's what I've learned about Milo is that fetch, which has nothing to do with obedience, fetch, which has nothing to do with chewing the wrong things, actually has everything to do with obedience and everything to do with chewing the wrong things. Because it burns up some puppy energy. And after he's done that, he becomes more obedient and less of a rascal. And if I'll build fetch into Milo's day and into Milo's life, he does a lot better on those things which didn't seem related at all. And what if some of our struggles aren't about the struggle? What if some of our weaknesses are actually part of a larger, deeper, more spiritual issue? I think we're hangry spiritually. I think our culture has never been more hangry in my lifetime than it is right now. And what if worship and and prayer were more impactful for the battles we face, much like they were in the Old Testament for the battles they faced? You know, I've titled this message Accidental Fasting. It's a weird title on purpose because I like weird titles. Um, Fasting, if you don't know what fasting is, fasting is a a practice, a spiritual practice where people will choose to go without food for a meal or a day or a couple of days uh, as a way to put more time to God, more energy to God, more focus to God. And so when they feel that hunger, it reminds them that they're doing this for God, etc. It's a great thing. If you've never done it, you ought to try it. Uh, It's a great thing. But when you do it, just a warning, when you do it, you're going to feel weak because you don't have that physical nutrition. And you're going to get a little cranky, so warn your family. You shouldn't do that, but you'll get a little cranky because you don't have the physical nutrients. And my question today is, what if many of us are spiritually fasting accidentally all the time? So I've, I've named this accidental fasting. You know, our bodies are addicted to food. I don't think we like to think of addiction it's something we are, but we're addicted to food. You go without food for a period of time and you're going to have a lot of 
of effect from that and a lot of desire to fix whatever that has to be fixed. Massive effects. And I would tell you our souls are addicted to God. They were never designed to live without him. And if you go without worshiping him for very long, I think your life pays a price. I think you have massive effects. And you may blame this or or point to that or wish they would change, but what if it's something more internal? What if it's something deeper and more spiritual? I think many of us, maybe all of us, have stretches in our life, maybe a stretch right now, where we're accidentally fasting spiritually. And we just think it's something else. Listen to me a second. We were never designed to live without God. So if you're here this morning and you're not in a relationship with God, maybe because you've never accepted it, maybe because you say, I'm not sure I believe that, I'm not sure I'm up for that, I'm not a church religious person, that's just not my thing, I've had a bad experience, I've walked away, whatever your situation is, you're not walking with God now. I just want you to know, is it possible that some of the symptoms you're experiencing in your life that you think is this or that or them, maybe it's just because your body was never designed to live without him. So you're feeling the emotional effects or the relational effects, but it's really spiritual. You know, some of us have accepted God and we've committed to walk with him. We've mentally asserted ourselves, say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. But if we're honest, the pace of our life, the distractions in our world have, have produced for us the exact thing they were designed to produce. And we're finding ourselves spiritually hangry and we're assuming it's everything else or everybody else, but maybe it's just us. And I just need you to know what you're doing to yourself. You're living without him. And you were never designed. I want you to bow your head and join me in prayer. God, I ask today that you would convince us, convince me, God, not just for this moment in this space, but but when I leave this room, when I go about what's normal in my life, that you would convince me of my need for you. And I would block out time, I would block out energy, I would block out focus, I would lead my family, whatever it takes to get more of you into my life. Help that be true of me. Not just for a few minutes on a Sunday, a couple days a month, but that that would be true of my life. God, for those who have never given themselves to you, for those who are not walking with you now, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that you would help them connect the dots between the symptoms they feel and the reality of their soul, the hunger of their soul their soul, they would identify that panting, that thirsting, that downcast feel as a desire for their creator. And they would do something about it today because you've already paid the price. You've already paved the way. They just need to say yes to you. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus, for paving the way, for paying the cost, for caring enough. We pray in his name.